you have your Bibles, Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 20 this morning. And uh, if you don't know where Haggai is, I've said this the first couple of weeks that we've been in Haggai. This is our third week. If you start in the New Testament book of Matthew and then go back two chapters, you're going to plop into Haggai. It's a very small book, so it's easy to be missed. But Haggai is a prophet, and he's speaking to the people of God in the year 520 B.C. And before we read this, I want to share this uh, quotation from a man whose name is Christopher Ashe. Christopher Ashe is a commentator on this passage. And he says that this passage is a true dose of spiritual reality. He said, we live with our heads in the clouds, oftentimes of what he calls, these aren't my words, okay? He calls it spiritual cuckoo land. Those are his words, not mine, okay? But what he says is this passage makes us face a true spiritual reality head on, one in which that always makes us uncomfortable. So here's my promise to you this morning. I wish it could be a better promise, but my promise to you is we're going to feel a little uncomfortable this morning. And if you do feel uncomfortable, then actually God's word is actually working in a way that it's intended to because this passage is uncomfortable. So it's Haggai chapter two. We're gonna be beginning in verse 10. If you have your Bibles, open there with me. This is the word of God. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, were there but ten? When one came to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you with all the products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from 24th day of the ninth month, since the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. God, uh, we need your help. Heavenly Father, we need your help to understand this passage. So we pray that you would give us your spirit and teach us. And God, we also acknowledge that we need teachable hearts this morning. And we need soft hearts that are receptive to what you have to say to us, especially in the midst of this passage, which can be so uncomfortable. So I pray for that. And we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So I want you to do a thought experiment with me, okay? I want you to imagine that Satan took over a city. So Satan takes over a city. Now, there might be some of you here this morning and you're thinking, well, I don't even believe in Satan. I don't even know who Satan is. Just think of whatever comes to your mind when you think of the embodiment of evil, right? If, if the embodiment of evil took over a city, what would that city look like? 
Well, Donald Barnhouse uh, lived about over a half century ago and Barnhouse was a pastor. He speculated that if Satan took over a city, it would look something like this. Here were his words. If Satan took an entire city, then all the bars would be closed. Pornography banished and pristine streets would be filled with tidy, polite pedestrians who always smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. All the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. Apparently, this city is in the South, by the way. (laughs) And the churches, well, the churches, they would be filled every Sunday, and Jesus would not be preached. I mention that because, in other words, what Barnhouse was saying is on the outside, right, everything would look spectacular. Everything would look perfect. People would be going to church on the outside. Everything would be done. Everything would be in the right things, but yet the very purpose of it all would be missed and the real underlying spiritual problems would be avoided. This is our third week in Haggai and we've seen that Haggai is the questioning prophet, right? He's the the prophet of God who is sent to speak to God's exiled people who have returned from exile in the Babylonian empire. It's the year 520 and they've returned home with a commission from God to rebuild the temple. And in the first week, we saw that Haggai came and challenged the people. He challenged the people to repent. That means to flip their priorities, prioritize God's work instead of prioritizing their own work. And then last week, we saw that he brought a message of comfort. He told them that even though the temple that they were building was underwhelming and didn't meet their expectations, God was with them for a purpose. And that purpose was to make them more like God, like his son, Jesus Christ. And then this week, we see that Haggai is sent to uncover something. And he's sent to uncover in the people of Judah, but also in us, something that we oftentimes don't want to address. And so he's sent with this question to the people. He asked them, what's your problem? That's his question for us this morning. What's your problem? In other words, you're building this temple, you're, you're living life, right? You're doing things, presumably. You're living through life. You're trying to do good. You're trying to help out. You're trying to be a decent person. But what's the underlying problem that all that work is trying to address, right? The people of Judah, they're building the temple. And so the question is, what problem is the temple supposed to address? I had a friend whose name was Lauren, and uh, she was in our youth group when I was a youth pastor back in Nashville. And she had been reading the Bible for the first time. And as she was going through it, she had all these questions. And I mean, she was studying it. She had a book with study notes and everything. And so every week she asked me, hey, would you sit down with me? And we're going to go through these questions line by line. And she would come with pages full of questions. But only one question stood out in my mind. I don't know why I remember it, but I do. So you get to benefit in a sermon illustration from it. Okay. She asked this question. She says, why does God spend so much time and space talking about ceremonies and sacrifices and rituals and clean and unclean things, a lot like what we just read in Haggai, right? And then she said this, why doesn't it speak about stuff that's relevant to my life? Anybody ever felt that way, by the way? Reading the Bible, said, what is all this stuff going on? What's that name? Who's that person? Why that ritual? What does this have to do with our life? And my friend Lauren, she was a leader, by the way. She was struggling. She was sincerely struggling. I mean, she was, she was single and she desired a husband and relational intimacy. She was struggling professionally and financially and she wanted to know, what does this have to do with my life? And, and she's not the only one, right? 
We all struggle with that question. In fact, I came across this this week. This uh, comes from a man named Sam Harris. Sam Harris is one of the leading atheists known uh, as one of the people of the, the, the new atheist movement. And in an article, he recently wrote this. If the Bible was truly the word of God, it would make specific falsifiable predictions about human events. You would expect it to contain a passage like, in the latter half of the 20th century, humankind will develop a globally linked system of computers, the principles of which I set forth in Leviticus, and this system shall be called the internet, right? But he says this, he says, the Bible contains nothing remotely like this. Why doesn't the Bible say anything about electricity or DNA or what about a cure for cancer? Why aren't these things or anything remotely like them found in the Bible The Bible, after all, is a very big book. There was room for God to instruct us on how to sacrifice a wide variety of animals, but nothing about these things. So here we have two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? On the one hand, we have a sincere follower of Jesus wondering, what does this all have to do with my life? And then on the other hand, a devout atheist saying the same thing. How is this relevant? What does this have to offer our lives? After all, what is our biggest problem? I bet if we surveyed every single person in here and we said, hey, what are your problems? And we listed them out, there'd be a number of problems, financial problems, health problems, relational problems. So what is the problem underlying all of these problems? That's the question. And Haggai, in this passage, is sent to uncover the main thing, the main problem. And he gives us three points. He says, we have an internal problem, an external problem, and then our only remedy. So an internal problem, external problem, and our only remedy. So let's begin with our internal problem. And in order to begin, I, you know, my mom was here the first service, so she was like a living example of this, living illustration. But my mom and I were really close growing up, and I would spend a lot of time with her. And in the summer times, I would always go to work with her. But before we went to work, we would always watch TV together. And my mom was a big fan of medical dramas. Okay, so we watched a lot of ER. We watched a lot of General Hospital together. And I don't remember much about those shows because I was so young, but other than George Clooney, I remember him, right? So other than George Clooney, I do remember this one thing that they always had in every medical show, and that's that they would always have a doctor who was always standing in the middle of his resident students around him. And he would be going person by person, asking them rapid fire questions, just kind of about the minutia of medical stuff, right? And then they would have to answer back really quickly. And I mention that because that's the same situation here that Haggai is sent for. He is like a doctor. And he goes and he's asking these questions of the people of Judah and the priests specifically. So he goes to the priests. And look, beginning in verse 10, we're told that it's the 24th day of the ninth month. This is just before Judah would plant their winter crops. And then in verse 10, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai. And then in verse 11, he's sent to ask the priests about the law. And then in verse 12, he says these words. He says, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hand. And what they offer there is unclean. So I got to set the scene here a little bit, right? Because in the Bible, this big distinction is made between things that are clean and unclean. 
But those words aren't used in the same way today. Like today we think of clean and unthing and we kind of think of hygiene, right? Like the, there's soap that is uh, clean and then there's a muddy puddle that's unclean or the women's bathroom is clean, the men's bathroom is unclean, okay? But in the Bible, that's not how the, the term is used. The, in the Bible, it's much more like being registered to vote, okay? So if you're registered to vote, then you are able to enter the voting booth on the first Tuesday in November and you're able to punch your ballot. You are able to go into the presence of the voting booth. But if you're unregistered to vote, you are prohibited from entering the voting booth and actually voting, right? So in the Bible, it's very similar. To be clean meant that you could enter the temple and you could enter the presence of God. But to be unclean meant that you were prohibited from entering the temple of God. And many things in the Bible could make you unclean. There were things like foods, diseases, animals. But the main thing that made a person unclean was sin or moral defilement. And, and the biblical logic goes something like this, right? God is holy. God is set apart. God is different. He is undefiled. He is spotless. He is clean and untainted by sin. So in order to enter God's presence, one must be clean and undefiled themselves. That was the purpose for all of these systems, all of these laws, all of these ceremonies, all of these distinctions between clean and unclean. They were supposed to expose the uncleanliness within us and the need to be cleansed of that before we enter the presence of a holy God. So look again at our parable that Haggai begins with, beginning in verse 12. He gives this parable and he says in verse 12, if a person is carrying holy meat in his garment and then he goes and touches something that is unclean, does the holiness or cleanliness of that thing transfer? And what's his response? No, holiness doesn't transfer to the unholy. And, and you could put this in a modern illustration. If a healthy person goes and coughs in the face of a sick person, does that make them well? No, right? Throw emergency at them, throw, you know, zinc at them, and that'll clean them up. But not coughing in the face of somebody, it'll just irritate them. Trust me, I know. Now, he continues, verse 13. He says, now if a person touches a dead body and then goes and touches any one of those things, does that then make those things unclean? What's his response? Yes. Just like when my sick kids come and give me a sloppy wet kiss, I therefore am sick for the next week, right? And here's the point. It's in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Do you see what God is saying? What God is saying in this is just as a person touches a corpse and then pollutes everything around them, making them ceremonial unclean, the same thing is true with the people of God in Judah. Everything that they do, everything that they try, every sacrifice that they make, every good work that they try and accomplish, even the good work of building the temple, all of that is polluted and unclean and defiled by sin. So I just want to make modern applications today, right? Put, the, put this into modern day terms. If we give to charity a good thing, what scripture is telling us here is that in a way, that act is unclean. It is defiled by sin. Or if we read the Bible when we wake up early in the morning or late at night, that even that act is in a way unclean and defiled by sin. Or when we help grandma across the road, right? Like every single good thing that you can think of is some way unclean and defiled by sin, not because the action is unclean, 
Not because the thing that we're doing is unclean, but because it comes from a polluted heart. Now, I want, I want you to think about this, right? I already said it's, it's almost August, which means one year from now, it's going to be everybody's favorite season. Do you know what season that is? Election season, right? We love it. We love election season. I'm being facetious, by the way. All right, so this time next year, we'll be in the middle of this presidential election and candidates are going to be telling us, right, what is wrong with the world? What is the problem with the world? They're going to say healthcare costs. That's surely the problem, right? Rising premiums, student loan debt. We have to alleviate that so we can have first-time homebuyers or income disparity. Once we alleviate that, then our economy is going to flourish or maybe the threat is to individual liberty. And, and here's what I want to say. These are important things, right? So I'm not disparaging these things, so don't get me wrong. But notice, under every single one of these proposals, where is the problem? The problem is out there. The problem is those people or that proposal or that policy or that candidate, the problem is never staring us square in the face when we wake up in the morning. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, try and say that three times fast, by the way. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian novelist and he was an outspoken critic of the Soviet Union. And in 1945, he was finally captured by the Gulag and he spent eight years in forced labor camps. And before Solzhenitsyn went to these forced labor camps, he was always under the impression the Soviet Union is what's the problem. He was a Marxist himself, but he didn't like the the various strands of Marxism going on in the Soviet Union. But he said, they're the problem. Once we get rid of them, then our country is going to flourish. But in the 1970s, after he was released from these forced labor camps and he had further reflection on this, he had these words. He said, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people, people somewhere out there insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us, then we would be okay. But I've now come to realize, now that I've grown, that the line dividing good and evil isn't between us and them. Instead, it cuts through the heart of every individual human being. See, what what Solzhenitsyn was saying is what Haggai was telling Judah here, that our greatest problem is not out there. The greatest problem with every person in this room, including myself, resides in the human heart. And this isn't just Haggai, right? This isn't just Haggai. This is Jesus himself. Jesus one time called a group of people to himself and he said, hear me, all of you, and understand. He he said, hey, I want you to understand this point, okay? There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they are what defile a person. Theologians actually have a term for this. They call it total depravity. It's, it's this biblical teaching that sin is not something that we just do. Sin is not something like just breaking the rules, although it is that, but it is actually something that's within us. It's functioning like a virus and corrupting our desires, our affections, our thoughts, our choices, and our wills. In other words, it means by nature, we are like the spiritual corpse talked about in Haggai's parable. 
And, you know, I was talking with somebody, there's somebody that's actually really close to me. I was talking to them recently about this very thing. And they said, hey, you don't really believe that, do you? Like, just think about your daughter, Lainey, and your son, Eli. They're two and four, respectively. And he said, now, th- you can't see any evil in them, right? They're, they're pure. They're innocent, right? And now this person was obviously out of practice uh, as a parent. He was a little older, far removed. But I said, okay, well, put it this way. I never have to teach my kids to be bad. I never have to teach my kids to be bad, right? I always have to correct my children to do good, but I never have to encourage them to do bad. And think about it. What comes naturally to a child, right? Okay, think about your childhood. Barrel of monkeys, right? You have your barrel of monkeys before you or your Lincoln Logs or your Beanie Babies or your Pez. Did I get everybody, by the way? Who's my Lincoln Logs people? Lincoln Logs people? All right, you have your Lincoln Logs, right? You're playing with them. You have your entire set of Lincoln Logs, but little sister comes by and she grabs one Lincoln Log. That's all she grabs. What's your first response? Mine, right? See, we never have to tell kids to be selfless and self-giving, but we always have to correct them from being selfish and self-centered. Total depravity, this internal problem defiles and pollutes everything we try and do. The best quote that I've ever heard on this very teaching comes from a man named Charles Spurgeon who was known as the Prince of Preachers. He put it this way, the venom of sin is in the very fountain of our being. It has poisoned our hearts. It is in the very marrow of our bones and it is as natural to us as anything that belongs to us. Now I told you that this was gonna make us pretty uncomfortable. In fact, I'm sure many of you right now are just thinking, well, Okay, but nobody's perfect, right? Everybody acknowledges that. Nobody would acknowledge that there's such thing as a perfect person. So nobody's perfect, right? And generally, we do the right things. Like give somebody 100 opportunities and 99% of the time, they're, they're gonna do the right thing. Haggai and the Bible are just making too much of this thing called sin. After all, isn't, doesn't the Bible also say that we're made in God's image? So how does that get into the picture? Well, Yes, we are made in God's image. And yes, we are capable of tremendous good, amazing things. Pepto-Bismol, by the way, is a perfect example of this. You have nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, and you can't mention that other one from the pulpit. But remember all these things, right? You just drink a little bit of Pepto-Bismol and then you're cured like that. Like humans can do amazing things. That's just a small thing. We can do really good things. But think of it this way. If you have a water, right, a good water, cool, refreshing, you want to drink it. The second you put a fatal drop, just one drop of poison into that water, is that water as bad as it can be? No. But every single water molecule is now tainted by that poison, and I would wager none of us would actually take a drink of it. See, the Bible says God sees everything, and, and, and we acknowledge this truth about our own hearts, but oftentimes because it's so com- uncomfortable, we want to suppress it, Right? So I used to do this uh, little illustration with my kids growing up, uh, or sorry, uh, with my youth kids back in Nashville. I said, imagine you have a computer chip and it was just planted in the back of your head. And for 24 hours a day and seven days a week, it's recording every single thought that you have. And it's recording every single thing that comes out of your mouth and, and every single affection that you have in your heart and every act that you do and every word that you say. Let me see a show of hands. Say we were saying, Hey, Saturday night, Deer Creek Church, everybody come and watch this video. Who would want them to have their families and friends come and watch that video? Anyone? Maybe if it was mine, but not yours, right? See, we're all uncomfortable 
with this truth, this internal problem, total depravity, so we suppress it and we push it down. And Haggai, right, he's the doctor. He's coming, and he's coming to uncover this internal problem. Think about it. If a doctor told you, hey, you have an imperceptible illness that if you do not address it will destroy you, would you go to that doctor and would you be like, yeah, but I feel healthy. No, I, I, I work out, I eat right, I just finished whole 30, right? I finished the whole 30. I didn't stop at 15. I joined a CrossFit gym. I wear Reebok even. Like I'm a healthy person. No, you, you'd want the doctor to tell you the truth, right? And, and the same thing with Haggai. Friends, what Haggai is telling us is do not diminish sin, even a drop, even the smallest fraction of sin in the human heart, Haggai is saying, functions like poison. Do not diminish sin in your own heart. Do not say things like, oh, it was just an innocent conversation with someone other than my husband or my wife. Do not say things like, well, lust isn't that bad. Boys will just be boys, right? Or, or everyone lies. These are just white lies. Or, or who hasn't gossiped on occasion? I'm not saying anything that's untrue. Everybody knows it already. Haggai is saying, do not diminish sin. It is like a poison that if unaddressed, if left uncovered, it will destroy you and everyone around you. And here's why we don't diminish sin. Not only that it'll destroy us internally, but we see there's an external problem, that the internal problem of sin results in an external problem. Verse 15, he says these words. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? In other words, what he's saying is, hey, you guys built the temple, right? You started laying the foundation of this temple. And think about it. Before you laid the temple foundation, how did things go with you? How was it going, Judah? How did it fare with you? What was the result? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat and drew 50 measures, there were but 20. In other words, you had economic and agricultural scarcity, right? You went and you expected 20 pounds of wheat, but you only had 10. You went and you expected 50 measures of wine, but you only had 20. And then he continues. He says, why? Why have these things happened? Why this scarcity? Verse 17, God says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. See, today, I want to be really clear here. So, uh, please, if you, if, if you can, please follow this, this thought, okay? We talk about the world and we talk about what's wrong with the world and we do say that this world is broken, right? And we acknowledge that this world is broken. And it's true, this world is broken. This world is not as it should be. In fact, the Bible affirms that this world is broken, but that is not the only thing that the Bible says about this world. The Bible also says that this world in a very real way is cursed by God. Remember this language that we just saw here, the language of blight and mildew and hail. We saw two weeks ago that these were all examples from the book of Deuteronomy of God's covenant curses on his people for the rebellion of human sin. It was his response to human sin. It was his active displeasure on his people because of sin. And so I don't want to be misunderstood. So hear this clearly, okay? I am not saying, nor is the Bible, that every instance of hardship and suffering in the world is the result of a specific sin, okay? 
So famine in Africa or a wildfire in California is not necessarily the result of a specific sin or sets of sins. And it's same on an individual level. There are many people who are suffering this morning. Illness and hardship are not necessarily the result of specific sins. Sometimes we are the victims of the brokenness of creation. We are perpetuated against. We experience the brokenness of this world. Sometimes we're not at fault for that. However, we have to look at this. What Haggai is saying and what the Bible says is some hardship and suffering can be linked to specific sin. All right, the pain and unraveling of a family experienced because a man or a woman committed adultery or the punishment and loss of a job of a person who steals from their employer, these are the result of specific sins. Meaning sometimes we are not victims of the brokenness of creation, but we are actually offenders deserving of God's curse and his active displeasure. Now I told you that this would be uncomfortable, right? And maybe, maybe for the first time you've just heard these, these first two points. This is just points one and two, right? And this is the first time that you're ever hearing these things. And I remember the first time that I heard, especially this, this idea of God's curse, I remember thinking, wow, that really makes God out to seem very severe and harsh. And I want you to think of it, if that's you this morning, I want you to think of it this way, okay? I play baseball or I played baseball and think of a baseball field, right? When you look out into the outfield of a baseball field, you notice it's all grass, but about 15 feet before the outfield fence, there's gravel. And there's a reason for that. They call this the warning track. And the purpose is for this. If you're a center fielder and you're standing in the outfield and the batter hits a ball over your head and you're running backwards, looking at the ball, getting ready to catch it, the second that you realize that you are no longer on grass, but on gravel, you realize, warning, wall approaching, okay? If you do not slow down, if you do not stop, if you continue running, you will hit that wall, fall over, not make the catch. You will be concussed. And then they're going to play that, song, that like little phrase from the sitcom uh, game show, you are the weakest link, goodbye. Like they're going to play that. You're going to feel shame and you're going to feel hurt, right? You're going to drop the ball. But the, the purpose of the warning track is to say, warning, danger approaching. Unless you're driving a Mack truck, you will fall. Why did God curse his people? Why did God send blight, mildew, and hail? It's not because he's severe. The only way you would come to that conclusion is if you didn't read the rest of verse 17. What does verse 17 say? It says that God's curse was sent so that they would turn back to God. His curses were a warning, a warning that said, humble yourself, soften your heart, acknowledge your sin, turn back to God. Otherwise, you are going against the active resistance of the all-powerful, holy God of the universe. So Haggai is saying this inward problem of total depravity results in the curse and warning of God to turn back to him to find a remedy for what's going on inside of you. Andrew Del Banco, he was a humanities professor at Columbia University, and he did research like extensively on Alcoholics Anonymous. So he was, he was traveling the country and he was going to these AA meetings. And he has a uh, specific instance he remembers that happened in the city of uh, New York in a church basement. And he remembers there was this crisply dressed man there who was talking about his problems. In his story, he was absolutely faultless. All his mistakes were due to the injustice and betrayal of others. He spoke of how he was going to avenge himself and on all those who wronged him. Delbaco then said, his every gesture gave the impression of grievously wounded pride. It was clear 
that things in his life would just get worse and worse and worse until he finally recognized this. And just then while he was speaking, a man who was in his 40s, a black man in his 40s with dreadlocks and dark shades, leaned over to Del Baco and said, yeah, I used to feel that way too before I achieved low (laughs) self-esteem. I think it's pretty funny illustration of this real spiritual fact that Haggai is not telling us to hate ourselves. He's not saying that. He's not saying, look at the sin in your heart and feel really bad about yourself. Instead, what he's asking us to do is humble ourselves, to humble ourselves. Some of us, myself included, actually primarily me, I refuse to take responsibility for the sin in my own heart. I refuse to take the responsibility of the hurt that my sin has caused others in my life. And when I look at my life, I say, oh, you know, it's that person's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my child's fault. It's my coworker's fault. It's God's fault. And if we continue to walk down that path, that path of self-justification, that I'm always in the right, if we continue to harden our hearts like that, then it's like Delbaco said, things are going to get worse and worse and worse, ultimately, until we face the ultimate displeasure of God eternally apart from him. God's curse is a warning. His curse is meant for this purpose, to humble us, to make less of ourselves, to remind us and to warn us to turn back to him and seek our remedy. Friends, when it comes to our sin, do not diminish your sin. Instead, humble yourselves and magnify the remedy That is what God's trying to get us to do. Not to say we're okay in our sin, but instead to show us the truth of our sin so that we will seek the remedy and we want to magnify the remedy. So the question is, what's the remedy? And and it's verses 18 and 19. Look at this. The answer Haggai says, it is the foundation of God. Notice how the story turns here, beginning in verse 18. Consider from this day onward, From the 24th day of the ninth month, this is three months after they've started building the foundation of the temple, right? Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. So you see what he's saying? He's saying before stone was placed upon stone, that was verse 15, you look back, what did you receive? The curse of God. And now that this foundation is laid, consider this. After the temple, verse 19, is seed yet in the barn? Remember, they haven't sown. It's before they go out and sow their winter crops. He's saying the seeds are still in the barn. And indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, now that the foundation is laid, I will bless you. What he's saying is mark this day. This is foundation day. This is like George Washington crossing the Delaware River. Okay, This is like the allied forces storming the beach at Normandy. From this day on, I will bless you. Out of your hearts came pollution and sin that defiled everything around you and the result was the curse of God. But on this foundation, I will reverse the curse. I will bring blessing and I will cleanse you from the defilement of sin. What is he talking about? What is this cure that will reverse the curse? Jesus And the New Testament pick up this language and they say that Jesus, he he had these words for himself. He described himself as the cornerstone. Meaning Jesus is the living stone upon which if we place our faith in him, we are then going to be built up in Jesus. So if we place our faith in Jesus, the cornerstone, not our good works, 
not the good things that we've done, not the charities that we've given to, not the times that we've forgiven our spouses. But if we place our faith in Jesus, then no longer are we under his wrath and curse. Rather, we receive the divine favor and blessing of God because of the cornerstone. No longer are we unholy and unclean, but Jesus himself by his Holy Spirit is changing his followers from the inside out and transforming them, cleansing them from the sin that is within them all, the total depravity that's within all of our hearts. Remember that quote we started out with Sam Harris. Sam Harris, you know, like many of us, he wonders, why doesn't God predict the internet? Why doesn't he predict the college football national championship this year? Why doesn't God predict electricity? Why doesn't he predict those things? And as interesting as that would be, as intellectually satisfying as it would be, that we could flip open to Haggai and be like, oh, yeah, God is real. Electricity, right? As intellectually interesting as that would be, God says our problem is not intellectual. Our problem is not that we don't have enough information of God and that God hasn't shown us enough to believe in his existence. No, the Bible and Haggai say that Our biggest problem is we have hearts tainted by sin. So the Bible doesn't point to electricity. It doesn't point to DNA. Instead, it points to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only solution. The Son of God in him is the solution for all that we need. It points to the curse of God poured out on the cross of Jesus Christ so that we might receive his blessing. It points to the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit given by Jesus. All of it points to the Son. I want to share this last story with you. This story is, it's kind of been going around the internet for some time, but it's a story about a homeless man who was one day approached by a young man. And this young man's dad was a very famous art dealer. So he had this really profound collection of classic artworks And so this son was going around one day and he stumbled upon this homeless man, struck up a conversation with this homeless man. And he proceeded to tell this this man what his dad did for a living. And this homeless man said, well, I'm an artist too. I'd love to paint you something. And the son was a little bit reserved, but he said, ultimately, okay, I'll, I'll let you paint this picture of me. So this homeless man paints him a portrait and they actually meet again at a later date and he gives him the portrait and it's a picture of the son. It's a picture of this boy. And this son had never seen a picture of himself before. His dad was, you know, a famous art dealer. He'd seen pictures painted by everybody, famous people, but he'd never seen one of himself. And so he gave it to his dad and his dad put it into the collection. Well, the dad ended up dying some years later and there was ultimately an auction to sell away all of these things that he had collected over the years, all of these masterful artworks. And the homeless man was actually invited to come into the art gallery and bid on the different pieces that would come up. And as the auction started, the son came up and he started the whole proceedings. And he said, before we begin our actual proceedings today, we're going to start with one select piece that my dad said was his favorite. And it was a picture of the son. And so the picture came out and it was nothing compared to what people had come and expected. They didn't know the name of the artist. So there's silence, there's crickets as the auctioneer starts throwing out opening bids. But the homeless man raised his hand and he made the opening bid, a small bid, something anybody there could have obviously trumped. And so there's silence. He receives the picture, applause happens, and then everybody's like, all right, let's get on with the real thing, okay? 
And then the son gets back up and he says, well, in my dad's will, there was one stipulation. It was whoever bid on the son gets the whole thing. Whoever bids on the son gets the entire lot. It's everything. Friends, Jesus, the son, has provided a remedy that if we would just approach him, our deepest problem, our deepest problem of indwelling sin and the tragic results of that, we would receive that remedy and we would be healed. The question for all of us is, do you want the remedy? And this isn't for just of those of us who haven't believed in Jesus before or aren't followers of Jesus. This is those of us who maybe have been following Jesus for a long time. Do you want the remedy day in and day out? Because it's tempting to believe that some of the things that I do are good. Some of the things that I do, God looks pleasurably on. He is favorable toward. But this teaching of scripture is no, even our greatest works are defiled because we have a polluted heart. So the question is, do we want the remedy? Do we want the remedy? I'll leave you with this string of quotes from Carl Jung who said, people will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid facing their own souls. But he who looks is awakened. Then a quote from W.H. Auden, the poet, he said, we would rather be ruined than changed. We'd rather die in our dread than climb the cross of our moment. Friends, do you want to change? Well, here's the remedy. It's the foundation, Jesus Christ on the cross. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is a uncomfortable truth, and we thank you for sending people like Haggai, your prophets, to come and tell us this uncomfortable truth, to show us this spiritual reality that is so uncomfortable we often want to suppress it. But Lord, thank you for the remedy that you've offered as well in your son, Jesus Christ, that if we place our faith in him, put our stake in him, then all the blessings of God belong to us. We are then told that we are your children. We are no longer polluted and defiled, but we are children of God, loved and adored by you. Father, we pray that you would apply this truth to our heart, that this would actually change us from the inside out, and that you would use this message, this challenging message from Haggai, this uncomfortable message, to change us from the inside out and to always seek the remedy in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.